0: Hey guys, just me again. We're going to put a trigger warning at the top of this episode because it deals with a sensitive subject. If this isn't for you, no worries. Skip on ahead to another episode. Please take care while you're listening and protect your own mental health. Hey, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Today we're bringing you a special bonus episode, brought to you in collaboration with the folks over at the Legal Writers Collective. Go on and check them out on our website or at LegalWritersCollective.com. Hope you enjoy! Appeal Justice B.W. Miller, dissenting. I have had the benefit of reading the reasons of the Chief Justice, and have come to a different conclusion about the materiality of the trial judge's misapprehension of evidence, which compels a different result. As explained below, I do not believe that the trial judge's misapprehension of evidence played an essential role in the reasoning process resulting in the conviction. Accordingly, I would dismiss the appeal. As I understand the trial judge's reasons, nothing in his reasoning turns on the year in which the appellant undertook sex offender treatment at the Ontario Correctional Institute. The trial judge considered a number of factors in rejecting the appellant's testimony and determining his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. One of these was the similar fact evidence, and I agree that this evidence carried considerable force. But several other factors led the trial judge to conclude that elements of the appellant's testimony were self-serving or exaggerated or contradictory. All of these factors undermined the appellant's evidence. Conversely, the trial judge found the complainant to be credible and reliable despite the inconsistencies in her testimony. The evidence, taken together, convinced the trial judge of the appellant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. With respect to the similar fact evidence, the trial judge drew a powerful conclusion from the appellant's prior convictions. There is virtually no chance, that coincidence explains the appellant having a criminal record for touching prepubescent females on the vagina while they are in his care and sleeping, and this complainant making the same allegation. He reached this conclusion, notwithstanding the appellant's voluntary enrollment in a sex offender treatment program, for two reasons. First, he stated from the common sense assessment that such a treatment program would not be completely effective. That is, it could not be asserted that because the appellants took a course for sexual offenders, that he would therefore no longer pose a risk of reoffending. And indeed, the appellant did not assert that. He argued that he was a changed man as of 1998 as a result of his convictions for sexual offenses. On his evidence, it was his new awareness and resolve in 1998, as a result of his convictions, that meant he would not reoffend. He testified that the OCI course was beneficial, but he did not credit the course with bringing out the dramatic change that he said occurred. The trial judge, of course, rejected the appellant's evidence that the 1998 convictions wrought the changes he said they did. Second, the trial judge concluded that because the appellant testified that he had benefited from sex offender treatment, then he must, at the same time he chose to undertake the treatment, still have a propensity towards touching the vaginas of young girls for his sexual gratification. If he had no such propensity, the trial judge reasoned, he would not have chosen to undertake the sexual offender course. From the evidence of the prior convictions and that the appellant implicitly acknowledged a propensity towards touching young girls for sexual gratification, the trial judge reasoned to a further conclusion, that the situation-specific propensity that manifested itself in the sexual assaults of 85 and 87 and 90 to 97, a considerable stretch of time, Was still operative when the appellant took the course at OCI, which the trial judge incorrectly dated to 2008. Nothing turns, in my view, on the fact that the trial judge misstated the year in which the appellant conceded that he still had a propensity towards sexual touching of young girls. It was one data point in an extended analysis. Whether it was 2000 or 2008, as the trial judge misstated, the salient point was that it was a long-held propensity, whether it was 15 years or 23 years, and the fact of having completed a treatment program at OCI whenever it was completed did not blunt its significance. On appeal, the appellant argues that if the trial judge had used the correct date of 2000, the appellant would have benefited from additional datum that the appellant had not had any negative incidents for a 15-year period post-incarceration, rather than seven years this would have bolstered the appellant's credibility in arguing that he did not commit the offense. I do not find this argument persuasive. It was not advanced at trial. The appellant did not argue at trial that the length of time that had passed since he took the OCI course on sexual assault, and more specifically his positive behavior during that time, blunted the similar fact evidence. The fact of having taken the OCI sexual assault course was accepted as being capable, as a matter of logic, of diminishing the significance of the similar fact evidence. The fact that it did not diminish its significance in the trial judge's final analysis was not due to how little time had passed since the course was completed or how long the appellant had been of apparently good behavior. It was because the trial judge doubted the efficacy of the course a course that the appellant himself did not significantly credit for making him a changed man and unlikely to re-offend. In any event, the appellant's conviction did not hinge on the similar fact evidence. First, the trial judge had ample reason to disbelieve the appellant, quite apart from the similar fact evidence. He testified that he did not understand the wrongfulness of touching a child's vagina because of his own experiences as a victim of sexual assault, but then admitted in cross-examination that he knew it was wrong to sexually assault a child. He testified that a car accident rendered him unable to sustain an erection and experience sexual gratification as before, but conceded in cross-examination that, as he had fathered a child since the accident, he could indeed sustain an erection. He testified that he told the complainant's mother about his convictions before they had a child together, which the trial judge found to be implausible in the circumstances and contradicted by the mother's own testimony that his disclosure was far more general than he claimed. Second, the trial judge subjected the complainant's testimony to scrutiny before accepting her core allegations. He found her to be credible in the sense of wanting to tell the truth. He determined that her mother did not influence her reporting of the sexual assault, whether deliberately or inadvertently, Although her mother asked the complainant leading questions about whether her father had touched her vagina, she also offered the complainant innocent explanations for her father's behavior, such as that he was cleaning her. The complainant rejected these explanations. The trial judge found the complainant's allegations to be specific enough not to be figments of her imagination. While the trial judge noted several aspects of the complainant's evidence that were factually incorrect, such as her age at the time of the incidents and her behavior following the incidents. He properly recognized the peripheral nature of these inconsistencies, given the complainant's age. I reject the appellant's arguments with respect to the complainant's testimony. For all of these reasons, I cannot agree that the trial judge's error meets the test as set out in the Queen and Lowerer. The appellant has not demonstrated that the error figured prominently in the reasoning process which led to crucial findings of credibility and reliability. Nor has he shown that it played an essential part, not just in the narrative of the judgment, but in the reasoning process resulting in a conviction. As the central thrust of the appeal focuses on the trial judge's misapprehension of the evidence, I would dismiss the appeal. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you are able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Radomile. Audio engineering by Anthony Radomile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Radomile at radnkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.